As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. 14 in the morning and I could hear my husband's phone ringing off in the kitchen. And so I got up and I could see that it was my sister's um, partner, Theo, calling and I thought, oh, maybe they've had a big night or something. So I answered really cheekily, you know, like, what are you doing? Like, what are you calling so early for? And 
and he just said something really fucking bad has happened. As you hear us say a lot, behind every crime is a family, friends and communities. Lucy Wessel contacted us to tell us her family's story about the unforeseeable and tragic loss of her brother Andrew, the baby of their family, who is remembered by them as a kind and gentle man who loved his family, animals and nature. He was a seasoned traveller who had friends all over the world. Andrew Drake was stabbed to death in 2019. Andrew, who was 29, died on the lawn of a house in Batemans Bay on the New South Wales south coast as his sister Penny desperately tried to save his life. The property where he was killed was the home of the then 18-year-old Daniel Sharp, who lived with his parents David and Julie. Andrew and Penny were invited over to the house for a drink. It's the kind of thing people do to get to know their neighbours. The night turned into a nightmare, resulting in Andrew's shocking death. It's Daniel Sharp's version of what happened that night that has been put to and accepted by a New South Wales Supreme Court. It's the account that has been reported by the media and is on public record. Daniel Sharp was acquitted of murder but found guilty of manslaughter by a New South Wales Supreme Court jury. It was a decision that shattered Andrew's family and Lucy wants to tell their story, especially about what the jury didn't hear. Information that was excluded by the judge about the perpetrator, his behaviour on the day of Andrew's killing and the shocking words he said to Andrew as he was dying. This information was later revealed publicly after the verdict. In Lucy's email to us, she said her family feels a great sense of injustice and concern that her brother's killer is now eligible for release in just a few years. Lucy is speaking up for Andrew so that his killer's claims of what happened that night are not how Andrew is portrayed. But first, Lucy tells us about Andrew and the life-changing event that happened when he was just 15. Andrew, I can safely say, was definitely the apple of my mum and dad's eye. He was the only boy. Um, I have my older sister, Louise, and myself, younger sister, Penny, and then Andrew. There are so many videos of Andrew that um, dad took. Dad just used to follow Andrew around while he played golf. He was a tiny, tiny little chubby kid with these rolls and massive cheeks. And um, so he'd be playing golf and like cruising down the hill on his little scooter. And yeah, he was just a really, really cool kid. And then we moved to Batemans Bay in New South Wales when I was about 13. So Andrew would have been about seven if I do my maths correctly. And he formed some really, really, really strong friendships throughout um, primary school, played soccer, played rugby league, often won best and fairest because he had real grit and determination. Like he was one of those kids on the field like that just really gave it his all. At age 11, actually, he started to horse ride um, at a local kind of trail riding place called Billy Joe's. And he would go up and down the coast with Billy Joe to like carnivals and things and help with the horses. And um, But he started barrel racing at age 11. So even from a really young age, like he just had no fear. 
And then kind of grew into a teenager, still a really good kid, did well at school. I think in each different group, so whether it be aunties and uncles or cousins or friends or, you know, us as siblings or even from mum and dad. So for us, we would call him Bud. Um, But growing up, because he was that roly-poly kid, he was nicknamed Blocker after Blocker Roach, um, who was a footballer. And um, so he had Bud... Blocker, Drakey from his friends, obviously Uncle Bud from his nieces and nephews. Yeah, he had a lot of nicknames, which was really cute. But I think most commonly as he grew up, it was Bud or Budo. Andrew was a really happy-go-lucky kid and never had anything to worry about. Um, And then, yeah, 2005, we went to Bali and everyone except for my elder sister, Louise, and my younger sister, Penny, um, was there. And yeah, just having a great time kind of walking along and yeah, we walked past a a restaurant called um, Rajas and a a suicide bomber we didn't know um, until later, but he'd walked in between our family, chucked a left into the restaurant and just detonated himself. So my brother was flown across the road, like we didn't know where he was for a period of time. And um, was this down in Jimbaran Bay? Was that down near the the beach there, or no? It wasn't. It was actually in Kuta. So, but right. they were um, wow. They were bombs that were kind of synchronized, so they went off at the same time, um, but in different locations. We were just cruising around looking for somewhere to eat, um, really having a fat time. Like we've got videos of, you know, even the bomber like walking in between us and chucking no. a left. Yeah, yeah. And then um, so but we're all joking and laughing and but thankfully and it's really crazy but the people that weren't kind of projected across the road um, were protected by these massive pylons that were at the front of the restaurant and which is just really freaky when you think about it but. Isn't it? Some of us ran. Um, I froze and then randomly started recording again and then so I can I remember looking at my dad and he kind of kind of stumbled a little bit and had blood coming from his neck and others had kind of run off but then we'd walked up a bit further after I'd come out of that initial shock and we realized that Andrew and Daniel the um, son of the other family that they were missing so we kind of walked back down we're screaming you know for Andrew and Daniel and and then they just walked out kind of like in shock and dazed. But then when Andrew realised that, um, you know, because that's when he saw Dad and saw that he was bleeding from the neck and, like, Andrew quickly, you know, grabbed a cab and put Dad in it and um, together they went to the hospital. Because we know from um, speaking to other victims of the other Bali bombing that there's no ambulances. I was so shocked, you know, being an Australian, I imagined emergency services are going to arrive, but they don't because it's a developing nation. And so, yeah, you've you got to get um, yourself to the hospital, right? You've got to get cabs and all of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think because, you know, when something like that happens, it's almost like it was just, re- I mean, if anyone knows Cooter area, it's really congested with traffic regardless. Yeah. So Andrew got in the cab with Dad, and but he'd wound down the window and he was flagging like people trying to, you know, get people to kind of let them in um, so that the cab driver could get to the hospital more quickly. And and I think for Andrew, you know, for all of us, that moment of time changed us. But for Andrew in particular, because he was only 15 and 
you know, he, like, we went back to the accommodation after that, but he went to the hospital with Dad and the other father of the family, Gary, and what they saw there would have affected him and did definitely affect him um, greatly because he was helping, you know, injured people, limbless people, seeing dead bodies. Yeah, and at that young age of 15, I'm sure it would have been really difficult for the rest of his life to kind of cope with that. It was quite a heroic effort, though, wasn't it, that he put in? And that's that's what other people have said about, about what he did that day. He certainly didn't act like a child in that environment. No, and he was. I think because he was such a grounded, strong, mature individual, even for that age, he took took it upon himself to, to take these actions. No one directed him to do that. And, and it's something I will always be so proud of him for, yeah. <laughs> seems like he had a well-developed sense of responsibility, even though he was 15. Was that sort of always obvious? And do you think that's what kicked in? Or I'm just thinking of my 16-year-old daughter. I'm like, what would she have done, like, Mm. in that situation? And I don't know what I would have done. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he was was really cheeky, don't get me wrong, but he was really level-headed because he had great patience and great compassion as well, but that was demonstrated a lot with children. Like kids loved Bud all through like the teenage years and like our cousin's kids and he'd always play soccer and whatever else with them. And I think just given the love that he was surrounded by and that he didn't have much to worry about, I think that Andrew was really blessed in that way and that he could just focus on kind of yeah, living a good life and being a good person and doing good things. And then he he went on and did those great Australian things, you know, you guys went to Anzac Cove and and those sorts of things, didn't you? We did. And I will never, ever forget my travels with Andrew in the Middle East because he, my husband and I were living over there at the time and Andrew was going through a bit of a rough patch with a girlfriend and and he was a bit down. And so I said, you know, come over to Israel and be with us for a little bit and then we'll go to Turkey together and um, Jordan and, and, you know, within a few weeks he was on a plane. He was definitely a really charismatic person that people were drawn to. And I remember this from travelling with Andrew and especially when we were travelling through Jordan and we went to um, like the lost city of Petra and stuff. Andrew had this random look that was like, it was, a, it was a rock that looked like a almost like a shark tooth on leather with a <laughs> hat that was twirled up like the old like cowboy hat and he was wearing like this singlet with shorts and a belt and people legitimately, like no word of a lie, were coming up to him asking if he were like a movie star, oh. I know you from somewhere and Andrew was just like, like no, like, you know, like kind of sheepishly saying no but um he did he had that real he did like he (laughs) and he had this yeah he just had this charm and charisma but the first week actually that he was there even the first day so we collected him and there was a big um conflict at the time between Israel and Palestine we were in a car and we're driving towards the accommodation in Tel Aviv and we hear these sirens going and um you know, we kind of just keep driving, but everyone else kind of stopped. And Andrew's like, what's going on? And then a car came up um, next to us. There was a red light, which was stopped at, and a car came up next to us and was banging on the side of our car and telling us to move forward. And we're thinking, we're at a red light, like we're not going to (laughs) go. And this dude just, he drove straight through the red light and parked across the road and just ran inside. And we're like, 
that is a that's a bomb like alarm you know yeah. that's a you know going it's off an air raid. To, yeah yeah it's an air raid exactly and so we've we've quickly like chucked a left and we're really close to the hostel where we were going to stay and went inside and they put us downstairs and Andrew was like oh my god like you could tell his adrenaline was going and he's like yes like this is going to be a really exciting time and I stayed with Andrew in that hostel for about a week and my husband had gone back to work um so it was just Andrew and I at the hostel and Anyways, Hamas had said that they, they'd actually put out a media statement pretty much saying that we're going to attack at 9pm on this certain night and so we all knew that we had to be in this bunker at this time. And I was up in my room at about 10 to 9, I thought I'll meander down to the bunker and when I go down, I'm kind of at the top of the stairs and I could see everyone down there and I couldn't see Andrew anywhere. So, of course, you know, naturally I start panicking, thinking, where is my brother? I guess my anxiety levels were through the roof. And we get the finally get the um, word that it's safe to go out again. Still can't see my brother. So the first thing I do is I run up to the roof and here is my brother on the top of the roof of this hostel who has videoed the rocket <laughs> like firing into Israel, being exploded over the sky. And the first thing he does is say like, look at this video I just got. And I was like, oh, my God, what are you doing? Um, so he was always searching for, um, you know, he was either riding horses at full speed galloping or, you know, skiing like, you know, in the snow. And he just he just loved the adrenaline rush. Do you reckon that's because of what happened in Bali, seeking that he's cheated death, so to speak, in that instance? Do you reckon that was a bit of a reaction to that maybe? I don't know. I just thought of that then. Cause... I do. I think that the um, bomb in Bali affected Andrew in many ways and I really do believe that that was one of them. Um, and anyone that kind of knows trauma will understand that people will seek out things that make them feel something greatly because often it can leave you feeling nothing um, and really empty. So Andrew had come back from travelling. Um, he'd worked a little bit in Braidwood, which is where my um, younger sister Penny lives. He went through a really tough time and I think that this is where things really came to a head with Andrew and his own kind of mind with the whole barley thing. Well, by this stage he's coming up to about 30, isn't he? And it seems exactly. to be... Exactly. It's an age with men I, I th- I've noticed actually on doing this show that... Um, mm-hmm. If they're sort of 30 and still wandering around in the Sierra Mountains or whatever, and yes. <laughs> you know what I yes. mean? It seems to be a, an age of like, okay, what am I doing? A hundred percent. And all of his beautiful friends of, you know, married, had yeah. children, and he's kind of exactly, where am I at? And I remember him calling me two weeks before he went back to mum and dad's and he said, you know, I really, really feel like I need help now. And up until that point, he had kind of had a distrust of mental health services. He reached out once and he just felt like he wasn't either validated or that they didn't understand. Mm. So when he said, you know, I'm going to go stay at mum and dad's, go and see a GP, get a referral and start the process of healing. I can't tell you at that <laughs> stage from an older sister how pleased I was to hear that and how hopeful I was for his healing journey and so yeah he went to mum and dad's helped them out down there got the you know got the referral had an appointment booked for the Monday after. They knew their neighbours there were they friendly or they were just kind of acquaintances or? They didn't know them 
No. So typically Andrew, Mr. Charisma, rolls in and suddenly he's friends with the neighbours. Exactly. So Andrew that day that he um, lost his life, he was down the back mowing the lawn and Daniel, the perpetrator, was over the back fence. So we shared a back fence with Daniel and his father and um, Andrew stopped the mower and said hello, you know, introduced himself and um, Andrew said something like, because he, you know, told Penny this later, but he said, oh, I met the neighbour down the back and I commented on the good music that they always play, like the 80s music and the Jimmy Barnes and was always coming from that back shed area. And um, Daniel had commented to Andrew saying like, oh, you should come over one time. So unfortunately that time happened to be that very night for the first time, yeah, and that's where Andrew lost his life. I guess if we can take it back to that day um, where Andrew and Penny and mum and dad and Penny's partner and their little son, Theo, had had a really, really fantastic day and they were down at the river and they were, you know, jumping off the rope, spring, swing off the bridge and fishing, mm. etc. and then had gone back, eaten some pizza, played some pool, and Dad decided to kind of call it a night. And Andrew was like, well, I've been invited over to the neighbour's house, you know, I'm going to head over there. And Patty, of course, you know, being an older sister, well, I'm not going to let you go alone. And so they, you know, they yelled over the back fence and were like, hey, um, you know, can we come over? And this was also documented later that a different neighbour actually heard that conversation. So it was really important to hear that they had um, invited them over. Um, So they went over together and including Andrew's dog, Jakey, because Jakey went everywhere with Andrew. So Andrew took over some bourbon. David is the father of Daniel and David had instructed Daniel to get some glasses from, they had like a little bar in the shed and he instructed Daniel to get some glasses and pour some, you know, drinks. And Daniel was doing that and he dropped a glass and it smashed and David, his father, berated him in front of Penny and Andrew so they're new friends and it just kind of went really badly from there. Okay, and you know this from Penny. This is Penny is the only living witness from your perspective. Yeah, and this is Daniel's version of events as well. Okay. So what happened then was Penny um, is very like, much like, you know, our whole family, but she could see that Daniel was really upset by this and she took Daniel outside and they were sitting on the steps together and, and Daniel was having, I guess, like a heart-to-heart with Penny saying that, the relationship with his father is really rocky. and He's quite young, isn't he, at this stage? D- yeah, only... he's 18. Oh. 18, yeah. So, and Penny was saying, you know, like, he's your dad, mate, you know, whatever it is, you guys have got to sort it out, family's family, like kind of that's it type of thing, which is our family stance. And so they were having, you know, this heart to heart and then they heard raised voices in the shed. And so they both ran in and Penny went in before Daniel Penny could see that David and my brother had kind of hands around, not around each other's neck, but, you know, like the scruff of the neck here, like holding each other's scruff of the shirt. And David had my brother like pinned against his workbench. So Andrew's back was kind of against this workbench. and But they were both kind of jokingly with raised voices shouting at each other like to you know, just let it go, mate. Like, just let go, calm down, calm down. So it was almost like they were 
holding each other, not willing to let go, but also wanting each other to let go. And Penny jumped in between um, and was trying to get Andrew's attention, you know. And so at this stage, Penny's in between David and Andrew and all Penny can see is Andrew. And then Penny said all of a sudden David from behind her kind of like wasn't slowly but just like kind of stumbled back and Penny turned around like as David's hands left Andrew's scruff, Penny turned around and saw him stumble back towards the boat and actually kind of hit the boat with his back. And then Penny was pleading with David at that point, you know, had her hands raised and um, David was approaching her and she had her hands up saying like, just stop, just calm down. And that's the last thing that she remembers. Um, So from that point, she loses her memory up until she's outside again, seeing Andrew stumble to the ground. So what she didn't see was what was happening in the background with Daniel and my brother. In that kind of the scuffling, David, the father, has lost his balance a little bit. He's stumbled backwards. He hasn't hit the floor, no. but he's, he's stumbled backwards and hit uh, the boat that's b- behind them. He hasn't been shoved. He hasn't been pushed or hit. No, and that's something that Penny said. Like she said, if Andrew had have shoved him, it would have impacted her as well. Yeah. And it's more likely that he was... You know, I guess if you speculate or you think how could that have happened, he could have stumbled back, lost his balance, or he could have been pulled off Andrew from the back. I mean, anything could have happened. They've been drinking. Exactly. You know, we don't. Yeah. I don't know how long they've been drinking, but you know. And and she's has no memory still of the next couple of minutes until Andrew is stumbling out and he has been stabbed by that stage. That's when her memory kicks back in. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, she recalls being in the dark outside and that there's a really close scuffle. And then she recalls like seeing Andrew um, fall to the ground, which is when she went to his aid. Um, Penny at no stage saw a knife. um, So she had no idea that Andrew had been stabbed until she knelt beside him and saw the blood um, kind of everywhere. So Penny, once she realised that Andrew was injured, she called for, um, you know, David and Daniel, according to Penny, were kind of standing over them. She asked them to phone the ambulance which, or for emergency services, which they did, um, because obviously Penny knows at this point now that someone has stabbed her brother and both of these men are standing over her. Um, she didn't trust them to do the right thing with the phone so she's mm. grabbed the phone and uh, the emergency services are um, you know giving Penny instructions on how to try and keep Andrew alive while she's got the phone kind of pinned against her face and her shoulder and she's trying to do compressions all while David and Daniel um, they were kind of there and then they were coming and going throughout the process and I can't correctly recall how long it took for emergency services to get there, maybe 15 minutes from recollection. But um, in this time, while Penny's trying to save Andrew's life, Daniel had gone in to his bedroom, placed the, you know, the weapon, the knife on his bed. And side by side with that, he placed the knuckle dusters on his bed as well. And David uh, proceeded to go back into the shed and grab a can of beer and start drinking that. And then, um, you know, the son and the father um, had some time together, 
before emergency services arrived. And of course, when emergency services arrived, and we didn't know this until much later, until we saw the body cam footage of the police, but you know, as you would know, the ambulance have to wait for the police to arrive before they can attend because someone has been, um, there's been a, you know, a violent altercation here. And um, when the police arrived, they didn't initially go straight to Penny and Andrew. They went straight to David and Daniel because they've realised someone here has been stabbed and here are two men and we're not sure who's done this. So, yeah, Penny, you can see in the footage that Penny's in the background trying to revive Andrew still. Oh and the police are doing, they're doing um, their job in, they, they need to now protect Penny and themselves and figure out who p- potentially has a knife here. So I guess then, you know, ambulance attended, Penny was... Um, was he still alive when they got there? Um, I don't think so. No, I think that he was pronounced dead pretty quickly. Within the 11 stab wounds that Andrew had, um, it is it was given um, in evidence later that one of the first at least three were fatal and that he would have been deemed incapacitated from that point. So, you know, the subsequent stab wounds in the back and all of that were, I mean, ev- all of them were unnecessary, obviously, but it definitely kind of le- leads into... Um, well, the lack of credibility to Daniel's story about what happened. Stab wounds in the back. Yeah, and defensive wounds on his hands, his forearms, in all like severely slashed across the back of the neck. So, you know, I guess Daniel's version, which, um, yeah, later did come out, was that, you know, Andrew was trying to bash him um, while Daniel was stabbing him. And, of course, the evidence points to or shows that actually Andrew was trying to get away from him and, in fact, moving, like, with his back away from him, trying to get away. He was trying to escape Daniel. If it's okay, I'd like to speak about the phone call and then yes. the next day because it's yeah. really, it was a really, really, um, I guess, the worst moment in my life and I'm sure for the rest of our family and Andrew's friends in the community, it was really hard as well. But um, so it was about 5.14 in the morning and I could hear, I've always got my phone on aeroplane mode at night. I hate being woken up and I could hear my my, um, husband's phone ringing off in the kitchen. And so I got up and I could see that it was my sister's um, partner, Theo, calling. And I thought, oh, maybe they've had a big night or something. So I answered really cheekily, you know, like, what are you doing? Like, what are you calling so early for? And, um, and he just said, something really fucking bad has happened. He said, your brother's dead. And the neighbours stabbed him to death. And I remember just like screaming, you know, what? I couldn't say anything but what, like what? And then he said, you know, your sister was there and he paused and I remember my heart just stopping and he said, you know, she tried to save him. And, you know, in my mind I guess I was like, okay, so she's alive but Andrew's been stabbed to death by a neighbour and almost instantly, you know, we we only know or have a relationship with one of our neighbours. So I thought, how could that have gone so terribly, mm. terribly wrong? And and then I remember asking about, I was like, the neighbour, like, you know, next door to mum and dad's. And Theo said, you know, no, it was the one down the back. And But at this point I'd fallen to my knees. Like I couldn't, I was just shaking uncontrollably. And 
My husband and I packed up the car and packed the woke the kids up and kind of just drove to Batemans Bay and we arrived there to the police station in Batemans Bay at about just past eight o'clock in the morning. And I remember racing in and they've, you know, the people at the front desk kind of looked at me really weirdly and they was like, can we help you? And I just said, my family are here. And they, you know, immediately, they didn't ask any questions. They just immediately went and opened up a door and and I walked in and I remember my mum and dad, you know, stood up. Um, they were opposite the door and I gave them a cuddle and I could kind of feel Penny's presence to the left side of me and, and once I'd given mum and dad a cuddle, I looked over and I could just see Penny sitting there like with her head, she was just slumped and she looked just, she didn't even look like herself, like she was in prison greens, of course her clothes had been taken for forensics and she looked like twice her size, it was almost like she'd, like she'd obviously been crying so much, like so much, but, um, and I sat next to her and I just put my arms around her and she just like her legs, I just will never forget her legs just moving up and down like she couldn't stop moving and she just looked at her hands the whole time and I looked at her hands and they looked really, really dirty and I remember thinking like, what on earth is that? And then I looked at her feet and that's when it hit me that that is all of Andrew's blood all over her. Yeah, that was really, really hard and I'll never forget that moment actually. And But we were escorted home back to mum and dad's house by a detective and um, I remember the first thing that I did was go straight out to the back veranda because our property overlooks Daniel and David's property and you could just see this huge crime scene. Like the police and forensics were coming and going and we could see this big blue tarp underneath this beautiful big gum tree and for weeks and months even after that we believed that Andrew's body was under there but it turned out actually that Andrew's body was around the side of the shed and that we couldn't we couldn't actually see that but you know in that moment we thought here is Andrew's like we can see where he is and it wasn't until later much much later that afternoon that his body was removed from the scene and his dog was brought back to us at around that same same time actually so it was a really really horrible day. Do your parents still live in that house? They do and um, as much as I won't speak for my family but it actually brings me peace kind of knowing that he you know he could have died anywhere you know if that had have happened but he died near my mum and dad's house and he was close to to them and their house and where a lot of our best memories were so that actually brings us some solace or at least me some solace yeah yeah i i, I can understand feeling like uh there's an important part of him there and i wouldn't want to leave it actually yeah and i think um you know that day um because i had uh, worked at a medical centre for many years in Batemans Bay before I moved away. Um, my sister, you know, the night before had sustained a, a pretty bad black eye, which could, you know, have um, been the reason for her not remembering a certain period of time. She could have very well been knocked out. Mm. So I wanted, you know, I contacted an old GP that I worked for and he um, 
very kindly on a Sunday attended our house and um, assessed Penny and just gave her something to help her sleep and explained that sleep would be the most important thing for her at this time. And yeah, and then subsequently he wrote a report later for court as well about that that black eye and that she had sustained that injury. So that, that was important for later on. Um, but then, of course, Daniel and David weren't speaking, so no one knew at that time. It was all speculation as to who had stabbed Andrew, and it took many, many months, many, many months. Andrew was stabbed in April, and I think they were arrested in July. And when I say they, Daniel was arrested for suspected murder, and Daniel's dad, David, and also his mother, Julie, were charged with concealing um, a serious and indictable offence because of um, some secret video recordings the police had recorded. After the break, we find out about what led police to charge Daniel Sharp with murder. 
you know, he exercised his right to silence and, um, he, yeah, he didn't speak. And it made, the, made it very difficult but also it probably helped the police in their investigation because if he had have been um, incarcerated at that time, um, they may not have uh, been able to get that evidence um, over the wiretap from their phones. They actually um, secured conversations between um, his dad and his mum and many other family members, actually. And, um, you know, one of the comments the police made to us is that they've never heard um, such victimised people, um, you know, it had all happened to them and how dare Andrew, you know, come to their house. And so that was really hard to hear because, of course, over those months they're, you know, concocting this story and... And, and we all kind of started to speculate, do they actually believe this now? Like in their own heads, is this truly what they believe? And I often think that actually. I often wonder if, if people have to convince themselves of their own story for, mm-hmm. for many reasons, not only to be able to then tell it back to police and, and in the court context, you know, believably, but also just to be able to live with themselves because it's such a horrible thing they've done, whether it's a bad car accident or whatever it is, I think surely you must have to convince yourself that you're the victim somehow. Yeah, for sure. I think that that's natural human kind of occurrence to try and justify the bad things that you have done. Yeah. But I think also in those recordings, uh, Daniel was boasting about Mm -hmm. what Um, he had done kind of heroically. So I think also in a kind of sick, sadistic way that he was also really proud of it. So um, Andrew was uh, murdered in 2019 in April and we went to court in 2021 in January, which from all accounts I've heard is actually can, is pretty quick. And to be honest, you know, we we really had full confidence in the police um, and they had explained to us that they had, you know, the best forensic scientists from Sydney, the best blood spatter expert. We had a, you know, we met the prosecution and, and her team and we really had full confidence in them as well. So we went into the trial feeling very confident with the evidence um, and It was a few months before trial, the prosecution phoned us and said that Daniel had offered the plea of guilty to manslaughter on the basis of self-defence. Even individually, without even having to speak to each other, we all said flatly, absolutely not, because that means that Daniel's versions of events will be held up in court as truth, I guess, or that people have to accept his version of events. And there was absolutely no way we would have done anything for the truth to come out. And um, so we all said no. Part of that plea means accepting that Andrew has behaved aggressively isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And because we are all so fiercely loyal and protective of Andrew and given the way that he died and we all just felt so strongly about there's no way that Andrew had a knife, which, you know, subsequently was Daniel's knife. There was only one knife used and Andrew didn't have a knife. So um, we all felt so strongly about it. 
So we went into court and so it was January 2021 and the first person to be called was my dad. And they they kind of asked Dad some random questions about that day and and Dad had explained that it was a beautiful day, that, you know, Andrew had spent the day with his family, then they played some pool and then Mum and Dad went to bed and and then kind of that was it and Dad Dad left and he never returned to court after that. And, um, And then the next person to be called was my sister who from the time in 2000, you know, in 19 in April until the court date in 2021, she held herself so firmly in her mission to tell the truth and just speak the truth of what happened that night and, yeah, just do the best that she could by my brother. And she did. I mean, I've never seen anyone. We were all very, very nervous for Penny and and, um, she was as well. But she spoke so articulately, um, really held her nerve. And we're so proud of her, yeah, for doing that. And then um, after that, thankfully, um, you know, she was cross-examined for 30 minutes by the defence. There was nothing there um, that was kind of questioned too much, which was really good. And and then Penny, after that, which was in the first three days, was able then to sit next to us in court for the remaining of the remainder of the proceedings. It was about a four week trial, so it was really really long, and a lot of the evidence was very technical. And I didn't know this because, of course, I'm a, you know, I'm a Law and and Order fan and you see all of these things in the movies and TV shows and you're waiting for these, you know, big moments of impact and um, like these aha and I've got your moments. And to be honest, it's in our experience, it really wasn't like that. And I think in the movies as well, they they tend to lead um, with the evidence, like lead the jurors, but it's not like that at all. So say, for instance, the blood spatter expert gets up and he explains what he found to the jury who also have the report, well, the blood spatter expert can't piece that together for them. All that he can do is give them the evidence. So behind the scenes between, you know, the prosecution and us and the detectives and we can all go into the back rooms and talk about what that actually means, like what that indicates that you can't lead the jury to say because Andrew's and David's blood was smeared together on the outside of the shed, that that indicated that there was an ongoing pursuit from David and Daniel and Andrew because, of course, at that same stage, Andrew was being stabbed. There was a bit of an aha moment for us, I will say, within the trial in when Daniel finally decided to give his version of events because we were never expecting that he was going to get up on the stand and speak and he decided to, so we're all kind of anticipating what his story would be and he got up and told the most fanciful, unbelievable story that didn't hold any credibility towards all of the expert evidence that had been given. So in our heads, you know, when we left um, after Daniel had given his statement or his version of events, we all kind of went back to the room with the prosecution. We were all like, oh my God, there's no way they're going to believe that. Like that's out of control. There's just no way that anyone could have believed it, but it must have created some doubt because it was just the craziest, craziest story. And um, I think it is explained in the papers somewhere, but he pretty much said that um, I guess his version was that my brother had found Daniel's knife in a 
fishing box while they were all kind of standing there um, and then started slashing at his father's face and then like slashed his father's hand and then Daniel grabbed my brother's arm he said I grabbed his arm and I twisted it around so he said he grabbed his forearm and like twisted it upon himself and made Andrew stab himself and then Andrew dropped the knife and then I picked it up and I started stabbing him. And Andrew's still punching into me. And then, you know, we go outside together and Andrew's still laying in and I'm still punching and stabbing him. And, you know, and then Andrew falls to the ground. And we were all like, there was no blood. There wasn't one drop of blood, my brother's blood, in in the shed. Um, so we're like, okay, so how did that happen? And then all of the stab, you know, the stab wounds to the back and the back of the neck and the defensive wounds. And my brother was a really strong, strong guy. Like he was a fit guy. And there's no way that he could have, even physically, when Daniel was actually showing us how he like put his, you know, for Andrew's forearm back into himself to stab himself. Like the prosecution said afterwards, they were like, that's physically impossible actually. So it was just, you know, for all of us, we're like, yes, you know, this is it. Like everything that's been excluded, but the jury's heard this version and there's no way that they'll, you know, um, let him off murder. And so everything finished and um, the judge gave instruction to the jurors to go back and to um, deliberate. It took them three days and each time they came back in and said that they couldn't conclusively, you know, agree. Um, And the judge each time instructed them to go back in, to really think about it, talk amongst each other. and, And then, of course, the fourth time, we're all sitting in the back room and one of the, you know, court clerks comes in and says they have a verdict. And we're all thinking, oh, my God, you know, like they're going to say he's guilty. This is, you know, what we've been waiting for. And we went in and we sat down and we're sitting next to Penny, my sister, who was there that night. And as, you know, the the four persons stood up and said that they found Daniel not guilty of murder, I looked, you know, like we all broke down together because it was just so unbelievable. I looked at Penny and if you recall earlier when I described what Penny looked like that morning with the legs shaking and her kind of head, you know, down and her hands, she went straight back to that, straight back to that motion. And I've never seen her do that like outside of those two occasions. So Daniel was found um, guilty of manslaughter in self-defence or in defence of another, excuse me, So, which is great for Daniel because he gets to continue to promote that story for himself of this heroic act in, you know, saving his dad. That was very, very hard to swallow and still is, to be honest. The charges were dropped for Julie and David for the concealing of the um, evidence for indictable crime. Um, It was explained to us from the prosecution that in order to um, pursue those charges, they would have had to have shared critical information to the murder charges, uh, which they did not want to do. They couldn't risk that. So they dropped um, David and Julie's charges, which was hard to hear. um, But, you know, we understood the process and we really wanted this murder charge to stick, you know. But Daniel, so he, his sentence, unfortunately, was unbelievable. 
It was a maximum of seven years and six months with a non-probationary or a non-parole period of four years and nine months. So he's actually eligible for parole in 2024, um, which, you know, it happened in 2019. That's, you know, he stabbed someone 11 times and in the back and has made up this story and has gotten off so, so lightly. You know, we obviously were very emotional. We didn't say anything because, uh, you know, we're there um, kind of for, for Andrew. It's not our place to say anything. And, um, yeah, we kind of just silently got up and left. When we walked out, um, some of the family went back into the back room and I, um, I really wanted to wait and say something to Daniel's mum, Julie. And so as she walked out, I approached her and I just said, you know, Julie, respectfully, can I say something to you? And she said yes. And I said, I truly believe that, you know, you and David have enabled your son in ways that have created his behaviour up until this point. And, And she asked me what an enabler was and I, you know, really kindly and respectfully um described what an enabler is and and I said you know you let him have your your registered gun under his bed he had knives displayed all over his walls he constantly you know got into trouble with the law and in fact you have covered up for him and put your name on you know car um, offences before and she's been found guilty of this as well so you know I'm like you've covered up for him his whole life and he's never had to be accountable Anyways, David started going off his head uh, and thankfully like a court person or like the security came in and just kind of like we all went our separate ways. But my, I guess, intention was to, I really wanted the parents to hear that I also held them accountable. I really, I really do still. Yeah, in the end, the judge said that the jury's obviously accepted that Andrew produced the knife Mm. that Andrew slashed David, the father's hand, that Andrew hit Daniel. So in the end, um, Daniel's defence team did a really good job. and They were outstanding, to be honest. I mean, it it is a difficult system because the Crown isn't representing you. They're representing the government, the Crown, um, you know, in prosecuting. And so they don't get to speak against... Daniel as a person. Um, They don't get to give, represent his history and the kind of history that he has had before this incident, whereas the defence can talk a lot about Andrew and try and paint a certain picture of Andrew and suggest Mm. that he might be the sort of bloke who'd go over to a neighbour's place and punch on a bit. And it seems like it it worked a bit. During Penny's recorded triple zero call, they say that Daniel can be heard saying in the background, why did you pull a knife on my yeah. dad, man? Yeah. Mm, that feels quite, I wonder how long he said that after he and his dad had gone off talking. I don't know. That's just my yeah. mind going. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you think, was it coordinated? There's potential for in any moment to, to be thinking, shit, what am I going to do? Shit, shit, shit. Yeah. To be yeah. immediately trying to think ahead about, you know, laying laying some kind of seeds for yourself. I think because Daniel wasn't intoxicated also, like his dad was heavily, heavily intoxicated. And um, when he was on the stand, he, um, I think his MO was, 
I do not recall. I don't think he actually answered anything. He just said he doesn't recall to everything, which we're not surprised because of the level of intoxication. But Daniel was sober. Like he had had like a sip of a drink before he'd smashed a cup or something. So he described his own father as being drunk most days and often passed out. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it is a it's a very very sad relationship, and unfortunately, um, I think because of what Daniel has experienced throughout his life, um, is potentially why he took actions um, the way that he did. One of the biggest frustrations for us was what the jury didn't hear, because if this particular evidence had have been let into um, court in front of the jury because the jury were excused at times. So we're all sitting there, we can hear the defence and the prosecution kind of arguing their cases to the judge about why or why not evidence should be um, submitted into court. Uh, Even pre-trial actually, which was a pretty important point, was that um, a neighbour had about 40 minutes before Andrew and Penny had arrived at Daniel and David's, had gone to the Sharp property, Daniel and David's property, and to see what the commotion was because Daniel and David had been arguing and were really, really loud. One of the neighbours had gone over to kind of see what was going on and Daniel had um, said, you know, F the neighbours, something like this, and had gone back inside and, um, as the neighbour explained, had come out with what looked to be a like a short barrel shotgun and aimed it at the neighbour and his partner. Aimed it in their general direction, I think, is how it was explained. And then He went back into the shed, Daniel went back into the shed and grabbed what the neighbour described as a like a hunting knife and was waving it around kind of wildly. So unfortunately that evidence was not allowed into court. The judge in deciding ahead of trial, he decided to exclude the evidence because he found that the apparent holding of the gun and knife were isolated acts um, unaccompanied by any act of aggression. That was really, really heartbreaking for us because, you know, like the neighbour described it as that Daniel was wired up and ready to go and had given a statement to police saying that if he had have entered that yard, if the neighbour had have entered Daniel's yard, that he would have been stabbed. So here's this young man threatening totally separate neighbours um, with a knife and a gun and, yeah, and then 40 minutes later stabs my brother to death and the judge saying, well, that's not related, we're not going to allow the jury to hear this, was like, you know, took our breath away um, and really had us questioning what what was going on with this trial. I always think about jurors, though, the minute that case is finished, they hear that stuff, you know. I think, God, how soul-destroying that must be. It would be traumatic, I think, for jurors to think, oh, my God, like I think, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, Yeah. and I, in knowing that after the trial that the police were pursuing charges against Daniel for threatening that neighbour, I phoned the local paper and said, please cover this because if this comes out in the press, everyone's going to know that Daniel's version, that because he had said he never had a knife the whole night in Andrew's, you know, the trial for the murder, but yet after that trial he gets charged for 
threatening a neighbour with a knife that night, and which he pleaded guilty to. So he admitted to having a knife. So it's, yeah, absolutely devastating. And something else I just will comment on um, in, in, in that was left out in for the jury where the police had something like, so it was something like 340 hours of recordings. They'd done this huge job at trying to get this evidence and they, they had some crucial evidence that was Daniel explaining to his father um, in this private conversation that he, you know, when Andrew was on the ground dying, that Daniel was standing over him and saying, you know, in his head, die, see, die, see. I won't say the word because it's not right. No. but And... And then, you know, he, he said that one, two, three, three times to his dad explaining how he was willing my brother to die and oh um, and the jury weren't allowed to hear this because the, the judge in finding that the evidence of the conversations, although it was rele- relevant, there was a danger that there would be unfair prejudice to D- yeah. Daniel, that the jury wouldn't be able to come back from hearing that. That should prejudice them. That's yeah. the point of, of, of knowing the truth, you know? Yeah. And I think the thing that scares me a lot is that, you know, if anyone searches Daniel Sharp's name, my brother's photos will come up because there are no photos of Daniel Sharp anywhere, um, no social media, no videos, no nothing. The only people that have photos or videos of Daniel are the police and they are damning. Those videos of Daniel from that night are damning. It's a shame, you know, he could be out in 2024 and no one will know what he looks like. So that's really scary. I wanted to ask um, how Penny is because Penny um, must be hugely traumatising. And also, can I say, you don't just get a black eye from kind of falling loosely on the ground, do you? I mean, really, unless you're punched or bang into something forcibly. Yeah, it's funny because I get really upset when I think about Penn, but um, she, you know, in her recollection, recollection when she says her last memory before blacking out is of David walking towards her and she's got her arms in the air pleading for him to stop, you know, we can speculate what happened there, of course, but there's no proof. So, you know, potentially that's how she lost her memory. She thankfully is in a really lovely community of Braidwood who have really all rallied around her and, of course, us as a family as well well, have done the same. But I think that that's one of the most, you know, tragic things, obviously, after losing Andrew is that Penny has to live with this for the rest of her life and, you know, what happened to her that night as well um, will never, ever leave her. I would say the community as a whole really wrapped around... um, our family for days and even months afterwards and um yeah we we really thank and we will never forget those acts of kindness the police as well you know I thank them for all of their really hard work that they did and they were really supportive and very understanding you know also victims of crime what an amazing um resource and organization that that is and also victims of homicide i don't think that without their for me personally without that ongoing support and resource to tap into when i need to talk to someone you know that i would be able to speak about this today so yeah we we felt very very loved and very supported by the Batemans Bay community the Braidwood community and then the external services I guess something that I would like the public to know is that my brother was a really kind um and caring guy you know there's no way that he would have ever picked up a knife and tried to 
do the things that Daniel said that he did and um, luckily enough now I guess the evidence has come out that yeah Daniel did have the knife all along. The day after Andrew was murdered I went down into his room and sat on his floor after you know tidying his room like a big sister does and um, I sat on his floor and I started going through the things in his bedside drawers and I found all of these beautiful feathers, eagle feathers and um, peculiar rocks um, that he'd collected from his travels and he loved nature stuff and I really, really loved that about Buddy. He really appreciated the little things and something that will stick with me forever was finding um, letters from numerous people. In these letters, they thanked Andrew for being a kind friend and for listening and um, for really caring. And these letters were from people from different parts of the world. And I really, you know, think that that speaks to the type of person that, that Andrew was. Thank you to our guest, Lucy Wessel. Lucy mentioned the victims of crime support she and her family has received, in particular from the Homicide Victims Support Group in New South Wales. Details will be in the show notes for this episode. If you have been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or there's 13 Yarn on 13 92 76, which is a 24-7 crisis support phone line for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. HubAustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. 